from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 23rd. Today, how a Georgia clinic is bracing for the state's new abortion law, the realities of the trade war with China, and the future of Harriet Tubman's $20 bill. And finally, I want to thank those behind me and to the side of me and throughout Georgia who refused to be silent on this issue, who rejected the status quo, who believed, as I do, that every baby has a right to life. A couple days before I decided to go to Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp had passed the latest in a string of heartbeat bills. But remember, today is just the beginning, folks. That's a bill that makes abortion illegal after six weeks into the pregnancy. Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily, a section of The Post that is focused on women. I had been reading a lot about these bills... House come to order. Lawmakers have approved a bill banning abortion once a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And, you know, little explainers about the policy and what they meant. The most restrictive ban on abortion anywhere in the U.S. could go into effect in Iowa, challenging a long-standing Supreme Court decision. The ways that they would be challenged in court, but I hadn't really read anything that put, like, a human face on who was being directly affected by these bills. And I thought, I'd love to know what an abortion clinic in Georgia is thinking right now. When they see all over the news that the governor is making abortions after six weeks illegal. We must protect life at all stages. Where do they go from there? We must remember our higher calling. And we must remember to work in the days, months, and years ahead, as we have done this year. Thank you all. And God bless you. I'm looking forward to signing House Bill 481, the Life Act. And I always ask them again. And sometimes sometimes they'll say, I said I didn't want to see, but I want to know how far along I am. Or I want to know, you know, I'll see if there's any. And I always say, do you have any questions for me? Specifically for me, you know, because I'm the ultrasound person. Are there any specific things you say to comfort people? It depends. So when you went out there, you met a lot of different people at this clinic, but you talked to one woman in particular named Gloria Nesmith. Who is she and and what does she do? Gloria Nesmith, who goes by Glow. Glow has just been kind of my name around here. People always called you. She is the ultrasound technician. She's been doing ultrasounds at the clinic for something like 20 years. She is literally the one who is looking at the fetus on a screen and telling the woman whether or not she's too far along to legally have an abortion. Mm -hmm. So if something like the heartbeat bill was to go into effect, her job would drastically change. She would kind of stop being the woman who eases people in and and helps them 
you know, figure out how far along they are in their pregnancy, then she would start being the woman who says no. I mean, I'm the one that I don't want to be the one that that has to say no. We don't know what this will look like policy and protocol wise for here. We haven't even talked. I don't think anybody even wants to talk about that. But I'm that person. What does her day-to-day job look like? She does the sonogram for every single woman who comes in to have an abortion. She works six days a week, something in the realm of 15 sonograms a day. She talks about how she hasn't taken a full week vacation in like 10 years because she insists on always, always, always being there on Saturdays, which is the busiest day at the clinic. Hmm. Um, So she's really committed to this job. Part of why... Glow wanted to come work at the clinic is because she had an abortion when she was a senior in high school. And that experience wasn't great. It was just, it was cold, it was lonely, and it was not private. I felt very exposed. She felt very judged when she went into the clinic, and she felt very sure that her parents were going to hear about this, her family was going to hear about this. And she really wanted to give women a different kind of experience. Okay, and I will do an ultrasound. I try to do the least invasive thing first, which is um, abdominals. When you go into Glow's room, the lighting is really soft and golden. She likes to keep it that way, so it feels like a home. She's playing jazz music on an iPhone speaker. She has this really beautiful painting of sunflowers on the wall that women look at when they don't want to look at the screen and see the fetus. The sonogram is very easy. I'm going to lie back. Okay. So she tells you to lie down. I'm not to make them get too undressed. Okay. I'll she puts some kind of blue jelly on her hands. And the jelly sometimes is a little cool. And I tell they can turn and look at the screen. And you can turn and look at the screen. And then she rubs it over your belly and takes out the ultrasound probe and kind of waves it around on you. You know, either, and and, and you've discussed this before, whether you want to see the fetus or whether you don't. You might not see a whole lot of users because... And if you do, she'll kind of gesture over to the sonogram screen and say, that's it. And that's what she does. And then she'll she'll, um, do her measurements and she'll kind of analyze everything you've told her and and she'll tell you how many weeks along you are. She also always asks, she said. I always ask them how many weeks were they expecting to be today? Because she says, you know, if if the woman was right on, she likes to be able to say. It looks like, you know, your dates were accurate. You know, great job. You keep on track with your cycle. She's really into kind of empowering women to feel confident knowing about their bodies. And then, you know, if... In the cases where somebody is too far along to get an abortion, she'll kind of refer you to somebody else at the clinic who will be able to say, all right, these are the other clinics you can go to in other states. This is what you can do. That can be really hard because most of the people who come to this particular clinic don't have the money to do that. Like, not in Georgia. That are not in Georgia. There's really not a whole lot we can do after that. I mean, there's really not a whole lot we can do. And she has this conversation 15 times a day. Yeah. How does she make decisions on estimates of how far along a pregnancy is? You know, I talked to Kwajalein Jackson about this, who's the executive director at the Feminist Women's Health Center. 
And she told me, this is a really hard job. It's not like every fetus grows at exactly the same rate. I mean, you can do a pretty good estimate, but there's going to be some gray area. There's going to be some wiggle room. Ovulation takes place in an unknown time. Mm. The sperm lives 72 hours. There's a two-week gray area that we just don't know. Mm-hmm. That's your word that goes. Yeah. yeah. Because legally. So when there are laws and restrictions in place about how far along someone can and cannot get an abortion, she is the arbiter of those laws. You know, one of the things that she said to me was, legally, I'm really scared. They're talking about, you know, criminalizing abortion for doctors who perform it. And it's not really clear whether ultrasound technicians would be included in that yet. But she's worried about that. If she was to make a determination that later when the inspectors come in and look at all the sonograms and look at all the records, if she was to make a determination that they did not feel was correct, who knows? How is her job in Georgia different from the way that her job would be if she were in another state where there were fewer restrictions on abortions? They have already been coping with more and more restrictions that have been piling on, piling on, piling on each other. So some of those are, you know, that the number of weeks for legal abortion has been dropping steadily. When GLOW started, you know, it dropped, she said, to 24 and then to 21 and then to 20. This clinic is lucky, the executive director told me, because they kind of already check all of the facility boxes that some of the trap laws, um, which are trying to shut abortion clinics down because they don't have the right kind of facilities. They, they're they not really in trouble there because their facilities are already really good. You know, it's, it's pretty standard for abortion clinics to be monitored by the government for state-appointed auditors to come in and, you know, check things out, check that all the facilities are up to date. But for GLOW, this can be, you know, kind of nerve-wracking. They're combing through this paperwork with a fine-tooth comb. They're looking at the records of presumably every single person who had an abortion at the clinic in the last year, and they come in unannounced. You never know when they're going to come. And so there's really absolutely no room for any kind of error. They come in and inspects us and pulls charts. Yes. How did they show up? They check my credentials. They check when the last time I've had continued educational training. Oh, wow. Yeah, they check. How would all of this change if the heartbeat bill goes into effect? No women would be able to get abortions after six weeks. And what that means in practice is that, you know, only a handful of women would be getting abortions at the clinic. The only kind of abortion that they could do would be a pill. They couldn't do surgical abortions anymore. They talk about how unlikely it is that a woman would be able to, you know, even if she knew that she was pregnant at six weeks, which many, many women don't. You still have to go through so many different steps. You have to first decide that this is actually something you want to do. It's something that takes a lot of thought. If there's a a partner that you want to consult or if you want to consult the father, you have to do that. Maybe there are parents that you need to consult. And finally, you need to raise the money for this procedure. And in Georgia, there is a 24-hour waiting period. So um, you have to, you know, when you call and say you want an abortion, you have to listen to a recording um, that's part of something called Georgia Right to Know um, that gives you a lot of alternate options. Yes. You have to listen to that, and you have to wait at least 24 hours before coming into your appointment. I mean, in most cases, you probably don't know within the six-week window. If you do know, you probably won't know until week four or five 
by the time you exactly. book an appointment, talk to your partner, find the money to do this, wait for 24 hours. It's really hard. One other thing that's kind of interesting in Georgia is that you simultaneously have this 24-hour waiting period, which is like, you know, sending the message of, you know, you've really got to think about this. you got to wait. You've got to mull over what this would mean. And at the same time, we know go, go really quick because you got to get this done in six weeks. How has the prospect of this law going into effect changed the way that their clinic is operating now? Since you know, the, the heartbeat bill passed in the House and the Senate. She said the heartbeat has been much more present in the sonogram room. What does that mean? She said people have been asking about it. People have been sort of hyper aware that their fetus might have a heartbeat. So they've been asking her. Does it have a heartbeat now? Can you, know, can you hear anything? Can you see anything? It's on people's or minds. They're paranoid that they're going to hear something. And I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. Not unless you request it to hear or see mm-hmm. anything, you won't hear or mm-hmm. see anything. So, so. Patients and potential patients assume that it's already in effect. And that is thanks to, you know, a lot of headlines that just say bill passed outlawing abortion after six weeks. It's kind of a nuanced thing to say, oh, wait, no, well, it doesn't actually go into effect until January 2020. It's very likely to be challenged in the courts. And what this particular clinic did that was really interesting, the day before this bill was signed, when they pretty much knew it was going to be signed into law, they put this huge banner outside of their clinic that says this clinic remains open. Hmm. And they changed their website, too, to say kind of something along those lines. So they're really trying to get out the message that they are still providing abortions, just the same as they always were. I know that it will likely be challenged in the court system, but if it does go into effect, has Glow thought about what she would do in that case? You know, she said to me that she couldn't imagine what it would be like to be in the business of always saying no. And Mm -hmm. she said, back, she couldn't come into the clinic every day. It would be too sad. It would be heartbreaking was the word she used. I can't. I I can't come in here. I can't be in the business of telling women no. I I couldn't work here under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't. So she she wouldn't do this job anymore? I mean, I think for her, it's, it would be a different job. It would not be a job that left room for her to lift women up and allow them to take charge of their own bodies and empower them. It would be a job that reminded them that they couldn't do all those things. It would just be too heartbreaking. I, there's no way I could, I could, I could do that. No. Caroline Kitchener is a reporter for The Lily. So at this point, is the Trump administration any closer to reaching a trade deal with China? No, they're further away from reaching a trade deal. We are in a full-blown trade war right now. And like any war, there are multiple fronts, you know, opening up every day. Damien Paletta is an economic policy reporter for The Post. 
There's the farmers in the U.S. freaking out, and they're going to get a multi-billion dollar bailout package. There's these telecommunications companies on both sides of the Pacific, not sure how to proceed. And, you know, the U.S. is cracking down on one of China's biggest companies, Huawei. There's all these products that are coming into the country every day in these huge, you know, metal containers that are facing different tariffs. So all these different things are happening. U.S. companies are panicking. What's this going to mean? And so right now we've gone from maybe they'll work it out to, oh my gosh, they're not going to work it out. And what does it mean for everybody else? And in addition to President Trump making threats against China, China has also been retaliating in some ways. That's right. China's imposing tariffs of their own on $60 billion in U.S. goods. And, you know, that's expected to hit farmers really hard, but a bunch of other industries as well. And I think that's what a lot of American companies are freaking out about. It's not just that they're going to pay more to bring products in from China, but that there's not going to be a market for their products in one of the world's biggest economies. And what do they do with those goods if they're just going to sit there? Now, it's one thing if you make widgets and they can just sit in a warehouse and wait, but if you like a strawberry grower, you can't just like you know, put them and in the refrigerator. Y- you usually sell a lot of strawberries to China. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, w- for example, the, ch- the cherry farmers in Washington State are those who are the most vocal because they're right there on the West Coast. They have a big market in China. They can't just let the cherries sit there, and so they don't know what they're going to do. So what is the Trump administration doing to insulate Americans, both American buyers and also American farmers and producers of things, what What is the administration doing to insulate them from the effects of this trade war? I feel like the White House is definitely trying to pump a lot of money at the farmers specifically. Uh, you know, they're talking now about $16 billion in bailout money. Most of that would go towards soybean farmers, corn growers, and then the wheat guys. And I think they're kind of hoping that China is going to capitulate in some way in the next few weeks. And so this stuff won't have to be carried through. But, you know, there's sort of different people pulling the president in different directions. Some people like, you know, Steve Bannon want this to be a long drawn out kind of holy war between the two countries. And others want this to be wrapped up, you know, more quickly so that there isn't a big impact in the economy heading into the 2020 election. So this bailout for farmers, where is the money for that coming from? And is that something that Congress has to sign off on? Congress does not have to sign off on it. The White House is not exactly being forthcoming about where the money would come from. It's around $16 billion dollars. President Trump is saying that the money would come from the higher tariffs that we're collecting. We are collecting more money in tariffs. President Trump says that money is coming from China. It's not coming from China. It's coming from U.S. companies that are paying more to bring their products in from China. So I guess if you're a U.S. company, you feel like it's kind of a raw deal. You're paying the farmers to keep quiet about you paying more for products. But it's not like the Chinese are going to be essentially paying off our farmers for this trade war. And what does Congress have to say about the fact that President Trump has brought us into this huge trade war? Congress at first, I think, was a a lot more resistant and tried to push back. And now, um, you know, you have this really complicated political dynamic where some Republicans at first had really squawked about the impact on farmers because the president's going to throw all this money at the farmers. They've quieted down a little bit. And Democrats are kind of split. A number of Democrats feel like the president's not handling this right because it's kind of herky-jerky and hard to predict. But at the same time, a lot of Democrats do support a tougher approach with China, especially people like Sherrod Brown, Chuck Schumer. Uh, A lot of blue-collar workers, you know, are very upset about, you know, their jobs being misplaced by China and stuff. So the, the politics are kind of scrambled, and that's allowed the president to kind of be much more aggressive. Are there any proposals being floated right now to try to bring an end to this? No, there's not. I mean, the president's kind of got control of everything. And there's going to be a big meeting between President Trump and President Xi Jinping of China 
at the end of June at the G20 in, in Osaka, Japan. And, you know, as we've seen him in the past, sometimes these kind of face-to-face things can lead to a brief detente, right? They might have more negotiations. They might cool things down for a bit. But at the same time, maybe the meeting doesn't happen. There's a lot of time between then and now. The stock market's really volatile right now. You know, the president's very unpredictable. And so no one really knows what's going to happen in the interim. So there are other things concerning the U.S. trade relationship with China that have developed over the last week, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest one, the one that kind of caught us all, quite frankly, off guard was when the White House announced late at night, um, one night last week, that they were going to essentially blacklist this major Chinese company, Huawei. They're the ones who make more phones than anybody else in the world. right. Especially when you travel outside the United States, you see them everywhere. And they're going to essentially prohibit U.S. companies from doing business, from selling their products to this giant company. And when they did something similar last year to another Chinese telecom company, ZTE, it was considered to be the death penalty. There's no way ZTE could continue doing business, making phones, if they couldn't get U.S. microchips and, and things like that. So the White House announced this, I think it was like after 6 o'clock on, on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Everyone started freaking out. It was seen as like a real attack on China, one of China's champion companies. And U.S. companies are now, like Google and others, are trying to figure out, well, how do we cut off this company so that we don't, you know, violate this new restriction? And that's just one company. So when they did this, it did not make China say, okay, 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 you know, we're going to cry uncle and do whatever you want. It just made China dig in more and think of more ways so they can retaliate. So is this like a new front in the trade war attacking Chinese tech companies? I think so. I mean, one of the president's biggest frustrations has been that uh, this allegation that Chinese technology companies steal information from U.S. companies and then use it as their own. They do this without, you know, permission or without paying. And the president feels like the U.S. has allowed China to get away with this for years because they haven't been tough on Beijing and that the only way to really get their attention is to be super tough. And so, you know, whether that's going to work or not, we don't know. It's never really been tried before. So for average consumers in the U.S., how are they going to be affected now that all these things have been put into motion? Okay, it's a great question. They're already putting tariffs on $250 billion in Chinese goods, and the president has begun planning tariffs on another $300 billion in Chinese goods. That would be everything we get from China. Okay, so I brought us a game to play. Remember when you were a kid and you would close your eyes and spin the globe, and then you'd point your finger in a place, and then you'd have to, like, Imagine living in that place. Yeah. Okay, I brought a list of every item that the U.S. is going to tariff <laughs> on hundreds of pages, <laughs> and you have to close your eyes and pick one, and then we'll see how many different things that they're going to potentially be impacted. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. so here you go. Hey, this is like a couple hundred pieces of paper, and each one has like 30 lines of things on them. Right, exactly. High-quality beef cuts. You have to close your in. eyes. You're cheating at the game, oh. okay? <laughs> okay, okay. Rec performance outerwear, men's and boys' anoraks, windbreakers, and similar articles. Okay. Co- so anoraks are going to be more expensive. Yeah, and that's just one of the 3,000 Can I do it lines. again? Do it again. Base metal statuettes and other orna- ornaments not plated. Okay, so... So ornaments. I don't know what kind of ornaments, but Base I'm metal sure some, someone is... Yeah, I mean, there's like live animals, donkeys, buffaloes for mating, all kinds of things, shoes, fireworks, products that every American buys are going to be Im- impacted by There's this. just pages and pages of stuff about footwear and wigs. Also, you printed double-sided. <laughs> so That's this right. is You're twice welcome. as much. Yeah. The first one was like horses for breeding, blah, blah, blah. And then it says live asses. That's <laughs> wax molded or carved articles, vegetable. There's one that just says flashlights, paint rollers, feather dusters, whisk brooms. 
This is everything. It really this is, is everything we use. It really is everything. They tried to wall off consumer products from the first $250 billion in tariffs. But at the end of the day, the, like the big enchilada is everything else. And that really means everything else. And so, you know, you might not have noticed if the company down the street paying more for a piece of machinery, maybe those costs were passed on in a few cents higher, this or that. But everything that you buy, especially heading into the holidays, is going to have some kind of element of this. Whether you're a farmer, whether you're, you know, a parent, whether you're a millennial, there's no way to get around it. Um, and like I said, maybe that's the cost of doing business. Maybe that's the cost of this new relationship with China. But there is going to be a cost to that new relationship. And we're going to see it pretty soon. Damien Paletta is an economic policy reporter for The Post. Compound alcoholic preparations used in the manufacturing of beverages. Yeah, Non-alcoholic like... non- beer. I mean, they kind of <laughs> deserve it. Chocolate milk. <laughs> prune wine. I mean, if you want prune wine, you'll pay extra, right? (laughs) Corset lacings. My corset lacings are more expensive! (laughs) And now, one more thing from Post reporter Deneen L. Brown about Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the politics around the $20 bill. Mr. Secretary, yes or no, do you believe people other than white men have greatly contributed to this country and its history? Yes. So it was in 2016 under the Obama administration when a number of people proposed replacing Andrew Jackson's portrait with the portrait of Harriet Tubman. She was a spy for the Union. She was an abolitionist. She was fearless. I mean, she went back to Maryland five, six times to help family members escape. She freed dozens, if not hundreds, of enslaved people. And she was incredibly smart. We have not heard anything regarding the status of the currency redesign. Will the redesign meet the 2020 deadline, yes or no? So let let me comment. So yesterday, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin announced that he's delaying the redesign of the $20 bill, which was supposed to feature Harriet Tubman. So that's created a lot of outrage. Instead of debuting in 2020, Mnuchin says that the $20 bill featuring Harriet Tubman won't come out until 2028, long after President Trump would be out of the White House. It wouldn't please his base because he seems to be offended by this idea of putting Harriet Tubman's portrait on the $20 bill. In one of the books, Omarosa, she quotes him as saying, do you really want that face on the $20 bill? And he has said it's pure political correctness to replace Andrew Jackson's portrait with Harriet Tubman's portrait. Now, Andrew Jackson is someone that Trump admires, even though Jackson was a slave owner and he placed a runaway ad and told anyone who caught him to give him lashes, more than 100 lashes. His face is on the $20 bill and people want to replace it with someone who fought for freedom. Deneen L. Brown is a reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to postreports.com and join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Martine Powers, and we tweet about the show using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 